So back into our study of the Gospel of Mark. If you weren't here for the congregational meeting, we do have some information available to you about church finances and things like that. So if you'd like to have that and you weren't here, just let me know about it or Carolyn know about it or somebody know about it. We started this uh, study of the Gospel of Mark uh, just a few weeks ago. But some things are already becoming clear and one of the things is, uh, we studied this early on, that very often the word immediately appears here, that Jesus immediately did this, and immediately after that he did this, that, or the other. And there's some sense of expediency that's, that's presented in this gospel that you don't necessarily see in, uh, in the others. But we've also seen this, that, that there are certain things that characterize the ministry of Jesus. That it, co- that it covered a lot of ground. It wasn't just specifically one thing that he did or one approach he took to this, that, or the other. But one of the things that's very clear as you go through all the Gospels, and you see this just obviously in this passage that we're going to study today, that, that there are certain things that, that characterize the ministry of Jesus. Things that you see Jesus do over and over again. One of those is preaching and teaching. You know, what he's doing is he's going about the land and he's preaching and it's teaching wherever he goes. But another aspect of his ministry obviously was healing. He healed people physically. He healed people spiritually. But another, a third aspect that comes very becomes very clear is this is, is, is the aspect of prayer. That those th- three things principally and primarily describe the ministry of Jesus. You see th- those basic things repeated over and over again as he goes through those years of ministry. He's 100% committed to every one of them. So if you think that sometimes the gospel of Mark appears to be repetition, it is because it is, in a sense, repetition. (laughs) Because you see those things over and over again. But anyway, we are still in the first chapter uh, of Mark. And we're picking up at verse 32. And we're going to read through 45. And immediately, see there? Immediately. He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve. See there? Healing. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, more healing. The whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick and very, uh, with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed, praying. And Simon and those who were with him stretched or searched for him, and they found him and said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, preaching, teaching, also that 
for, for that is why I came. Why did Jesus come? He came to preach and teach, principally and primarily. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And we know that sometimes Bible passages are meant to be taken literally, and sometimes they're not. The context basically gives you some idea why or when. Do we really think that all, that the whole city, that means absolutely every single person in the city flowed to wherever Jesus was to see what he was doing, to listen to what he was teaching? Are we meant to take that literally? Probably not. What we should get from it is this, is that a great many people, a large percentage of the people were gathering to hear Jesus teach, to see Jesus healing people, even to see him do things like cast out evil spirits. The thing that we need to glean from this is that a great many people were responding to the gospel. Not just one or two. It was causing a ruckus throughout all of Jerusalem, what was going on with Jesus. These massive crowds appearing in the, in the countryside as well. Jesus preaching, Jesus praying, Jesus healing, Jesus casting out demons. We live in a world where many people through history and today have heard the word of Christ. But at the same time, we understand this. There will be people in this world that we live in today who will die never hearing the name of Jesus even spoken in their entire life. There are still unreached people groups in this world. All of that is true, but you know what else is true? There's a big however. That a very large number, a large percentage of people that live in this world today will hear the gospel in their lifetime. Because the church in every generation has taken seriously the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. I love missionaries. People who are willing to give up very often the comforts of home, the closeness of family. Very often church congregations that they've become family members with. To go. Because Jesus calls them to go and they respond. And 
No religion, listen to me careful, there is no religion in the, in the world, in the history of the world, that has had quite the impact on the world that Christianity has. Nothing else comes close. Now, Islam is growing. And other religions, too. But up to the point that in history that we are, there has been no religion known as worldwide as Christianity has been by a long shot. And that's because people in every generation have taken the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. They've taken it seriously. I'm thankful that we're part of a denomination that does that. We have a whole agency that is dedicated to world missions, mission to the world. You need to understand something. That is that Islam is gaining ground on Christianity. And if things continue, it's going to exceed Christianity in its influence, in its reach. You hear people talk about Christianity as just another religion. Just another religion. That's because they don't know that Christianity is very unique. All other religions basically come down to the same thing. It's all about doing, keeping certain rules and you doing it. If you do good enough, you get in. If you don't do well enough, then you're out. Don't let anybody tell you that Christianity is just another world religion or it's just like other religions because it's not. It's absolutely unique. And this whole concept of having a Savior to do for us that which we're not able to do for ourselves. And having faith in that Savior. There are rules to be kept. God's rules. Absolutely. Supremely. Completely. And we all fall miserably short. Jesus makes up the deficit. Jesus makes up the humongous deficit. Jesus makes up the unbelievable deficit. He keeps the rules, not for himself, but for those who believe that he did it for them. It is in that sense that John's words fall true, and that is the Father has sent him to what? To be the Savior of the world as we've seen already in Mark uh, remember the, the healing that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law we know that physical healing had a lot to do with 
Jesus' ministry, a big part of his ministry, everywhere he went, he was healing people that were ailing from all kinds of physical problems. Here we see in verse 34, he healed many who were sick with various diseases. Jesus came principally to save us from our sins, to to deliver us from our sins. So why did he heal people physically? Why does he continue to heal people physically? Well, for a lot of reasons, but one of those very clearly is to demonstrate his deity. Because he's doing things that people know only God can do. People can't do them. Can you imagine seeing some of these healings that are taking place on the spot in the presence of Jesus? Jesus healing people miraculously. And not just one, but many. Everywhere he goes. Why? Well, one of the things is he's he's compassionate. He doesn't like to see people hurting. But it's also because of this. Now, we know this. We know that modern medicine has made a lot of advances in our day. And it seems like it amazes me the things they're doing now compared to what they could do years ago. There are probably people in this room that are living today that wouldn't have been if we'd lived 100 years ago. But probably most of us wouldn't be if we lived 100 years ago. Now, the average lifespan in 1900 was 45 years in the good old United States. We have people now that are reaching 90, and they still seem to be pretty vigorous. Modern medicine has a lot to do with that. But you and I know that modern medicine is not a gift of man. It's a gift of God. God's given that to us and we benefit from it. We will far outlive physically all of these people that Jesus is preaching and teaching to here in the scriptures directly. But one of the things that's notable about this is I don't know that people are ever healed instantaneously. I mean, we have all kinds of surgeries, we have all kinds of medications, we have treatments, we have this, that, and the other, but none of that stuff works like that. It takes time. These people are sick. Some of them are deadly sick, and Jesus says the words, and they are completely healed no time lapse what I'm telling you is even though modern medicine has accomplished a whole lot it doesn't come close to what Jesus is doing here in the scriptures there's no comparison why did he do it well one of those things is we know that God is a compassionate God he wants to relieve their suffering And he has the power to do that. But we also know this. It's going to leave these people with a question. And the question is, how is it that he can 
do that instantly. And there's only one possible answer to it. That he's God. Because this is a God thing. And they know it. Remember in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, Jesus healed a man who had been born blind at birth. And the people and the leaders were telling them basically, you're blind because of some sin that your mother committed because you had this when you were born. It's, your, or it's her fault. He says this to the Pharisees, this, this, this man that was, was healed that was born blind. This is an amazing thing. Bless you. <laughs> you do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never and you can look this up in the scriptures because he's right. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Ever. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What wisdom. What theological genius coming from a man that people had very low regard for because they believed that he was blind because of his sin or because of the sin of his mother. And we know this, that the, the, the apostles are going to have the ability to heal people physically instantaneously. Once Jesus leaves. And they also know this. That one of the things it does is it validates the, the ministry of the apostles. Demonstrates that they truly are disciples of Jesus. His emissaries. Such physical healings will serve to validate the ministry of the apostles. He also engaged the demons, the darkness, directly. He cast out many, many demons. And he would not permit the, permit the demons to speak because, guess what? They knew who he was, even though the people might not. He might not have given a lot of thought to this, but it seems as though demonic activity and presence seem to have heightened at the coming of Christ into the world. 
In other words, it's like Satan is throwing everything he possibly has at Jesus. Everything in his arsenal. Doing everything that he can to prevent the success of Jesus' ministry. Demonic activity in the world today is something that a good bit of uh, the visible church doesn't really give a lot of thought to. That is in the civilized world. If you were to go into the not-so-civilized world, you'd find things very different. Some of us have been to Uganda. Some of us would love to go visit Uganda again. And I've shared this with you before, but there were times when I was in Uganda where I felt the darkness in a way that I have never felt it here. Just the presence of pure evil. How much thought do we give to that sort of thing? We still live in the day and time frame that Paul identifies as this present darkness. There are, ways, there are ways in which things are not identical today as they were then, but there's a lot of overlap. But how much sensitivity do you and I have to the presence of this present darkness? So you and I are called to wage resistance against sin on two fronts one within and one without to be part of the battle I don't know about you but you know, as you, as, you get, as you get older and older and older, you, you wonder how much longer you're going to be here. And, you know, you have a sense the end is coming. don't know when it's going to be and, you know, this, that, and the other. And there are other things that you want to do that you haven't gotten done and this, that, and the other. So you're hoping it's not too soon and, uh, uh, and that sort of thing. And sometimes you get battle-weary. Because we're in a battle. Let me tell you, if you've never been battle-weary, you, you, you need to think about where you're at. We are in a battle. Within and without. And we know who's going to win it. There's no doubt who the winner's going to be. But in the, at the same time, we're still in a battle. It doesn't change the fact that we're in it. How interested are we? How much time do we spend putting sin to death in ourselves? Putting sin to death in ourselves. Is this something we actively involve in? Do we just assume God's going to do it all, you know, and this, that, and the other? 
Paul writes this in Romans 8, 13 and 14. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The question is, are we doing that? For all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I mean, how much thought do we give to the fact that we are working against a foe that will be defeated in the end, but is not yet? Verse 3 the demons. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Isn't that amazing? The demons know who he is, but half the people or most of the people don't. James writes this, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that much and they shudder. Years ago, Frank Peretti wrote a number of novels designed to bring this picture of this demonic battle that's going on around us kind of into the thinking more of Christians in the world today. This present darkness and piercing the darkness. Did you read those books? Lengthy books, interesting books. I read both of them. But I think his whole heart was to bring, to bear the knowledge and understanding that we are now in a spiritual battle. Whether we feel like it or not, we are, period. And it's a battle that rages outside of us, but it's also a battle that rages inside of us. Jesus also had prayer as a priority. Verse 135, and rising every morning, early the next morning, rather, while it was still dark, he departed. He went off by himself. He left the other guys behind and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. I'm sure there were times when they had group prayers where he and the disciples prayed together. But Jesus did a lot of praying privately. And he didn't even tell anybody where he was going or why, evidently. He just went. I know that most of you, or at least a lot of you, have your private prayer time. There's a time of day, maybe, that you sit down in your prayer closet, in a sense, and you pray. Uh, Let me ask you, was prayer essential to Jesus? You bet it is. It was essential to him. How much essential do you think it is to us? 
was a priority for him, don't, don't you think it must, in fact, be a priority for us? I mean, Jesus could have just gotten up that morning and hit the road and gone and healed a bunch more people. After all, they needed it, right? But he didn't do that. With willful purpose and intention, he went in private and prayed to God the Father. We pray in groups sometimes, but let me just tell you, there's something about private prayer that can't, you're not going to get from praying with other people. And what about this? If Jesus needed to pray, how much do you think we need to? There was anybody on the face of the earth who really didn't need to pray. It was Jesus, but who did it? He did. Faithfully and diligently. His whole life, in a sense, was a prayer. Living out a prayer. Sometimes I find myself praying rather cursory prayers. Kind of going through the motions, not really thinking too much about what I'm saying or why I'm saying what I'm saying. I tell you what, I would have given anything just to listen to Jesus pray just one time. Once. Two sentences. I would imagine there'd be such a stark contrast between what he did and what we do that it would be almost like nothing in common. Let me tell you, the Bible mentions prayer 375 times. Few things would be mentioned as many or more. What I'm telling you is apparently the Lord considers prayer to be vital for every believer. Vital. Critical, the greatest in importance. Some people here may be saying, Well, I just I don't know how to pray to God. I don't know what to say to God. Sometimes I think we might be better to consider prayer to be very much like having a conversation. Where we're speaking, but at the same time, we have a sense that God's speaking back to us. It's, it's, it's us opening up our heart to Him, to the things that are most important to us, the things that are most precious to us. This Apostle Paul will years 
later write, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Most Bible commentators in regard to that will say things like, uh, we must pray regularly and protect our regular prayer times or private and public prayer, that sort of thing. John Calvin writes this. He disagrees with that, by the way. What he writes is this. He's making reference to the Apostle Paul and something he says in 1 Thessalonians. He says... He commends constant prayer. In other words, what he's saying is that prayer is to be an unbroken thread that is woven through your entire life. In other words, in a sense, it's part of what holds you all together. Well, let me tell you, you can pray when you're doing just about anything. And if you're not, you're wasting time, precious time. I know some of you don't mow your grass anymore, but I do. But you know one of the things I do when I mow grass? I pray because I can mow grass and pray at the same time. It's amazing. It doesn't mean I don't get off track on occasion. But it's no big deal if I do, you know. Washing dishes. Driving down the road. You can actually do more than one thing at the same time. Right? You know, I drive back and forth to Chiefland quite a bit. And a lot of that time I pray. I mean, you're wasting your time otherwise. You know, you're just going somewhere and... (laughs) you're confined to your vehicle or whatever and you may be by yourself and you can't have a conversation with somebody else but you certainly have a conversation with God, right? My whole challenge is to take advantage of the time we have because we don't and we easily could. We spend maybe an hour or two in prayer a week, you know, and are proud of it. We could spend a whole lot more time if we would just think about praying unceasingly taking advantage of, of time that, that, that we can do something that we have to do but at the same time we can pray also I have conversations with God. You know, prayer doesn't always have to look exactly the same time. Thing. I can't tell you how many times I'm going, Lord, what in the world are you doing here? Why is this happening? What's that going on? What? Help me see and understand this picture because I don't. Prayer was a very constant and important critical element of Jesus' life. Always. Not just when he entered into his prayer closet or went out into the wilderness. 
It was something he did all the time. very important for us to remember some biblical principles and one of those is this is that we know that God causes all things to work together for those who love God no matter how crazy the world looks God's at work what I'm saying here is this is that even the things that look like they're bad will eventually be turned to good by God I can imagine that when you know, the Lord comes back or we die and we go to be the Lord, we're going to be just amazed about all kinds of things. And I would imagine one of the things that will come to mind is I wonder what he was doing. I question what he was doing. I doubted what he was doing. But now I understand. Now I understand what God was doing in this situation where I even wondered if he was in the picture. We're going to have questions in this world that we don't have answers to. We just are. You have to be comfortable with that. Are you going to go crazy? Or get crazier than you already are? We have everything. He's given us everything that we need to know. Maybe one of these days we will have answers to all of our questions. Maybe not. Maybe we'll actually come to the point where we under. Stand, they simply don't really matter. Not anymore. But the point I'm trying to make this morning is just as Jesus' ministry was characterized by these things. Now, I don't have the ability to cast out demons as far as I know. Nobody in this room does too. But that doesn't mean we don't engage into that realm. But for each one of us, our ministry has to be characterized by things like prayer. Spending time with Christ. Confronting the world. As hard as that is at times. Telling people what we know. But more importantly, who we know. And what all that means. I hope you're encouraged. Be encouraged. God is at work.
in us and around us and through us. Just like he was with Jesus. Maybe in different ways. But he is. And ultimately, that's the only thing that matters. Matters. 